You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Mike. Well, I'm Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and I want to add my welcome and greeting. We are delighted that you are here. We believe that no matter how you think you got to be in this room this morning, we are convinced that God, in his sovereignty, in his goodness, and in his grace, has divinely directed your steps that you would be here among his people, in the presence of the Spirit to gather around the Word, which means God is doing everything in His power to communicate directly with you. So I just want to set your expectations accordingly. That's what we're here to do. We get to come as God's people, in God's Spirit, around God's Word, and we get to hear what God says, what God thinks, and what God wants. So I want to start off by saying, Happy Mother's Day. Now, I just want to do a quick word on this. I don't want to devote the entire service to it, but I want to say Happy Mother's Day uh, in general and specifically to my wife, who is a great mom, who has uh, mommed my sons and reversed all of my bad fathering. So thank you, and Happy Mother's Day to you, my dear. It's worth mentioning Mother's Day because our Lord Jesus himself had a mother, and he loved her very much. It's interesting that the Savior, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords had a mother. Motherhood is a part of God's plan and how he reveals himself. Even the Apostle Paul would write repeatedly and frequently to the churches that he loved, that he had planted, and described himself loving them as a mother loves her child with tenderness and compassion and mercy. Mothers are nurturers. And they demonstrate the self-giving compassion of the God whose image they bear. So, whether you are a mother or you have a mother, thank you. Moms matter. So I just want to say Happy Mother's Day. And if you haven't made plans to celebrate some mom somewhere, uh, there's one right there. She'll take all gifts that you have to muster. Now then, I want to get to the text that Mike just read because I'm, I'm sort of bursting with anticipation about this. It is a familiar passage to most of us, to many of us, and it may even be the most familiar passage in all of Galatians. It's such a wonderful text because it really does do a great job of really uniting all of Scripture. Now hear this. The passage that you've already heard read is sort of this great cog, this central hub that unites all of scripture to explain to us what it looks like to really be a Christian. Now that's a mouthful. That's quite a promise. But this is one of those texts that brings together several different streams and reveals to us what it really looks like to be a Christian, to have Christian liberty. Now I want to say right at the outset that I have had the privilege uh, over the last couple weeks to spend some more time uh, reading and studying than I normally do. I've had a lot of time sitting in airports and those sort of things. And so I just want to say and celebrate that I get to sort of summarize and borrow from the thoughts and ideas of a lot of my heroes in the faith. I get to, to sort of reflect on guys like Martin Luther and A.W. Tozer and Don Carson and N.T. Wright and Doug Moo and on and on and on. And so I'm just bursting with how all of these different heroes of the faith have wrestled with this passage, and now I get to sort of be the one who comes and synthesizes and summarizes. So here we are in Galatians. We stand as those who do theology in community. We never, ever, ever want to be a people that as an individual sit down with our Bibles in isolation and say, well, this is what I think this means, and I'm pretty smart, so I figured it all out. No, we do this in community, and that has helped us to arrive at all of the conclusions that we have in Galatians. Now, we have been in the book of Galatians uh, since early mid-January. This is our 17th message in the book of Galatians. Lord willing, we will conclude in two more weeks. And it has been a very fun, fruitful study for me personally, and I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through it as well. The overarching theme of Galatians is Christian liberty. 
Paul's gospel is God's gospel. Or better said, God's gospel is Paul's gospel. He didn't make this stuff up. And Paul says repeatedly and emphatically, do not be fooled. Do not buy a bill of goods that anybody else is selling. This is the gospel, and the gospel produces freedom, liberty. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and even to one another. It is not advice. It is an announcement. Something has happened. It is finished. It's all about Christian liberty, living in freedom. Now, it took four chapters to get through doctrine. And finally, last week, Mark, uh, Mike opened up Galatians chapter 5, which begins by saying, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. This repeated uh, exhortation that this gospel freedom is that which has been offered to us. So what does Christian liberty actually look like? This is the core passage, I think, that explains everything with pertinence and practicality. Now, listen, I don't do this very often because, frankly, uh, having a structured, organized, formal sermon freaks me out. Uh, I usually kind of just, it's all happening at once, and then it all sort of comes out, and you kind of have to deal with it. But today is Mother's Day. And I kind of felt like, you know what, moms could use a little order in their lives. And so today, I'm going to give you a very formalized, structured sermon outline. I don't normally do that, but here's sort of the outline of the passage that you've already heard read. It's going to break down into three sections. If you want to jot these down, that's great. Now, moms are teachers. Moms are great at explaining things, at describing things. My mom was great at explaining things, and my mom had a gift for apophatic instruction. I know. Well, let me explain. Apophatic instruction is where you explain something by telling what it is not. Sometimes moms are great at saying, no, it's not that, and it's not that, and it's not that. Are you tracking? Yes. So in honor of my mom, and perhaps you as a mom as well, here's the outline for this passage. It just comes in three little sections having to do with Christian liberty. It goes like this. What Christian liberty does not mean, what Christian liberty does not do, and what Christian liberty does not fail to produce. So again, this little passage breaks down in three sections. What Christian liberty does not mean, what Christian liberty does not do, and what Christian liberty does not fail to produce. So, the first little section. It's in 16 and the first part of 17. There are three things that Christian liberty does not mean. So let me start off again. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. If you have your Bibles, I highly exhort you to follow along with me. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So there are three things in this passage that Christian liberty does not mean. I'm going to break this down now into three little sub-points. See, moms, you're living the dream. Three things that Christian liberty does not mean. Number one, Christian liberty does not mean that we don't struggle with sin. In fact, it means that we struggle with sin and can win. This is really good news. Christian liberty does not mean that we will never struggle with sin. It means that we will, but we can win when we engage with sin. Paul says, you will not gratify, you will not tell us, uh, complete or finish or bring to bear the desires of the flesh. And this is not an imperative, like you will not do that, do you understand? No, it's you will not. It is a promise. It is such good news. Victory is possible. Christian liberty does not mean that we don't struggle with sin. In fact, we do. Paul says there is this thing called the flesh. The Greek term is sarx, and it usually refers to our old sin nature, the way we are conceived, the way we come into this world. 1 Corinthians 15 says that in Adam all die, and everybody comes into this world in Adam. He is the provider of our inheritance, which is separation from God and ultimately death. But in Christ, we have life and proximity to him. We are indwelled by his spirit. 
sarks, the flesh, the old sin nature, has as a default tendency, it wants to sin and to act in faithlessness. That's what the Bible says sin is, Romans 14, 23. Anything done apart from faith, and that is the default nature of our flesh. And our flesh is in conflict with the Spirit of God that indwells us. They want different things. And there's a tension because what Paul is telling us here is that we have a responsibility. We have to choose. We have to stop and intentionally be aware of the Spirit's presence in our lives. That's our responsibility. There is something for us to do, but it is merely to be mindful. To be mindful of the Spirit's working and activity in us. To be intentionally, deliberately aware, but it is the Spirit of God who actually does all the work. Sistren and brethren, this is massively important. It is the Spirit of God that actually does the work. What that means is, it ain't you. Your responsibility is to be yielded, submitted, and mindful, and aware, and cognizant of the Spirit. A number of years ago, I served... uh, a church and uh, a man came on staff who was absolutely convinced because of theology that he had done in isolation that a Christian was someone who would never ever sin again nor even be tempted by sin. To which I responded, (laughs) here, come with me. I'll prove you wrong in no time. And I sure did. And he was not on staff for very much longer because that is an absolute heresy diametrically opposed to the revealed word of God. No, Christian liberty does not mean that we don't struggle with sin. It means that we do and we can win. In fact, that is the mark of a Christian. I know people who come to faith and they go, gosh, I'm a Christian now, yay, but now things have gotten hard. Uh Uh-huh. Used to, I did all kinds of stuff and I didn't care, but now I feel really bad about it. It feels worse than before. Uh Uh-huh. The fact that we struggle with sin is a mark of our sealing by the Spirit. See, conviction and guilt is to the soul as pain is to the body. It's revealing to us that something is amiss. We do struggle with sin. That very conflict is a mark of a Christian. The unregenerate and natural person does not have that conflict because that person is not indwelled by the Spirit of God. Now, they may be very good and moral and decent and pay their taxes and don't use foul language and all those things, but the best that person can hope for is to be good out of fear and pride. Listen, this is one of the oldest lines in every textbook on psychotherapy. Morality and decency is largely in a human context based out of fear and pride. I don't want to be exposed as the fraud that I really know that I am, so I'll be good and decent and moral in case people are watching. But that is a life of bondage and slavery. Paul says, no, for freedom you have been set free. So the first thing that Christian liberty does not mean is that we do not struggle with sin. The second thing comes in verse 17 as well. Christian liberty does not mean that you get to do whatever you want. The end of verse 17. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Christian liberty does not mean that you get to do whatever you want. It means wanting what God wants. Now, we've said this throughout this whole Galatians series, but a Christian is someone who develops into the kind of person that what they ought to do becomes synonymous with what they want to do. And that's freedom. Knowing what God knows produces in me a want of what God wants. Oh, and there is freedom, there is purpose, there is glory in that. You are a whole person. You are not two separate beings living inside of a meat suit. That's called Gnostic dualism, and we reject that. You are a whole person, which means presently you are redeemed, and yet you still struggle with the flesh. That is a part of your personhood, and you will always struggle with the flesh until the risen Lord Jesus cracks the sky, comes out in a white horse, and utterly and eternally removes your sin nature. Until that point, you do still live in a dark and dying age, and yet indwelled by the Spirit of God himself. You, sistren and brethren, could not possibly be closer to God, nor he to you in this age, because if you are a believer, a fully devoted follower of Christ, the Spirit of the living God himself indwells you. He could not be closer to you in this age. And there is yet coming a time when he will be even more near
is now. But in the meantime, we got to live, we get to live as if that age has already come. Now the third thing that Christian liberty does not mean, Christian liberty does not mean the removal of all constraint. doesn't mean that. Christian liberty does not mean the removal of all constraint. It means we aren't constrained by the law, but by the Spirit. Here it is in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, being under the law is different from obeying the law. Yes, we should obey the law, but it is a world of difference from being under the law. Being under the law means I have to do a bunch of stuff to earn God's favor, to achieve right standing before him. Obeying the law means I know God, and so I want what God wants, which is righteousness. And it's all the difference in the world. It might look the same on the outside. Your friends and your families might not know the difference, but God does. Being under the law says I am obligated to try to get something from God by all my decency. And I have to slug out this hard relationship, this hard life of being good so that God will give me stuff. Obeying the law says, oh, I know him in whom I have believed, him who has sealed me for all eternity, who he is, what he has done, and therefore whose I am, I have joy. And so what I want is what God wants. I am transferred from being constrained by the law. Now I am constrained by the Spirit. All the difference in the world. And if we're not yielding to the Spirit, And the only real alternative is that we are relying on the power of our flesh. And that means that we are opposed to God, even if we're being good and moral and decent. Now, for some of you, I just punched you in the head. Even if you are being good and moral and decent, but it is done apart from a yieldedness to the Spirit of God, you are opposed to God. Paul says the very thing in Philippians 3, all of my goodness, all of my righteousness, all of my decency was filthy rags and filth and trash. I didn't just say, well, I didn't do quite good enough. I need a nudge or a boost, God. No, all of my best efforts done in my own power and capability was actually filth because I wasn't yielded to the Spirit, because I didn't know the Spirit, because I was not indwelled by the Spirit. Let me give a really uh, weak illustration. Some of you are aware that this summer our family is getting to travel to Spain to go on a mission trip. And we will be in an area in which none of us have ever traveled. So there's a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know that we don't know. And so we'll do what we'll do is we'll try to have with us a guidebook. We'll have an app or seven, and we'll have all the information that we can have as ready as we can to try to help us navigate and get around. But what if we were in Spain, and instead of trying to fumble through a guidebook or a clunky, awkward app, what if we had this guy? Oh, yeah. Some of you know this guy. His name is Rick Steves, and he knows everything. Rick Steves loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. What if I could have all the experience, all the knowledge, all the wisdom of Rick Steves in my own heart and mind? Would I even need the guidebook? No. Rick Steves has eaten that ceviche, and he's also eaten that ceviche. He won't do it again. Why would I ever go back to a rigid book of conduct and strictures and rules when I have the spirit of Rick Steves within me? Oh, Praise be to God, I don't have the spirit of Rick Steves within me. Now that times a gajillion, there are the codes of conduct and the, the, the roles and regulations and the rules, but instead, Paul says, you're not constrained by that stuff anymore. You are constrained by the spirit of God, and you are invited in to know what he knows and to want what he wants. Instinctively. He changes our whole will around. Well, Paul continues on. The second part of this passage begins in verse 19. The first bit is what Christian liberty does not mean. The second section is what Christian liberty does not do. What Christian liberty does not do. And Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he's going to rattle off. This list, it's not an exhaustive list. You can tell because the list ends with this and other things like it, yada, yada, yada. 
And Paul has a bunch of other lists throughout Scripture. There's a list like this in 1 Corinthians 6, in Romans 6, in Titus 3, and on and on and on. It's not an exhaustive list. It's sort of a, a shotgun attempt at saying these are the obvious actions of the flesh. My freshman year of college, I showed up from the panhandle of Texas, uh, and I showed up at college, and people warned me. They said, now look, when you go to college, you have a meal plan, and you can pretty much eat whatever you want, whenever you want, and you have to be careful of the freshman 15. Well, that turned out to be true. I did the freshman 15 about six times. <laughs> it was my problem. I swelled up like I had been bitten or stung by 37 bees. I mean, it's... <laughs> That was the freshman 15, but Paul's doing something different here. In verse 19, he's going to give us the fleshly 15, okay? A list of 15 things, the fleshly 15, and these things are sort of easily broken into some obvious categories. So let me just have some fun here. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, all these things sort of go together. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. They're sort of synonyms of similar actions. Sexual immorality, we've got impurity, sensuality. Most of them, all of these have to do what happens between the ears that works itself out bodily. And so I'll have students, usually, somewhere around the early ages of high school say, well, you know, uh, the Bible never says that pornography is wrong. False. It absolutely does in both testaments. It does not use that specific word, but sensuality is a, an impure indulgence of the mind and the eyes that works itself out physically as an impure, sinful manifestation. Sexual immorality, uh, sensuality, impurity. The heart wants what it wants. The will chooses it and the mind justifies it. These things that work themselves out, and what they do is they turn us in on ourselves, and we begin to collapse and implode. There's another set of categories here. There was sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, verse 20, idolatry, and sorcery. These two sort of go hand in hand. Idolatry is elevating any good thing and making it the best thing. It's not actually gathering together all of the remnants of your mostly used soap and carving a little statue out of it. That's weird and creepy, and nobody does that anymore. No, idolatry is taking the good things and making them the best things so that you begin to think, if I don't have that, or if I don't get that, or if I don't do that, all is lost. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your wealth. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your looks. Maybe it's your preaching ministry. It's where we take the good things and we make them the best things. And that place in our life is reserved for God alone. And if we place anything in that vacuum, it will be crushed and it will crush us. That's idolatry. Sorcery comes from the word pharmakos. You can hear the word pharmacy. But it doesn't just mean chemical abuse, although that's a part of it. It is an attempt using human ingenuity to alter and modify our environment for our control. We want to rule. We want to master. I remember as a little kid looking at my parents and thinking, you know what? One day I'm going to be a parent and I'll tell everybody what to do. And then I became one and I had even less authority. It was incredible. <laughs> but as a five-year-old already spewing forth the Edenic fall. I want to be in control, and I will do anything I can to alter, control, master, or subdue my environment. That is pharmakos. So idolatry, sorcery. And then all of this relational regression, where the bonds interpersonally completely erode. Enmity. So I, I just, I don't like you. Why? Because you got a face. And that offends me, because it's not mine. Ugh. Strife. I just don't like you because you're not me. See, all these things sort of are synonymous. They sort of interplay with one another. Jealousy, zealous, means I want your stuff because I'm better than you and I deserve your stuff. Maybe it's your car, maybe it's your house, maybe it's your spouse. 
I want your stuff because how dare you have something better than I have because I am your better. That's jealousy. Fits of anger. Well, that's pretty obvious. Why do we have fits of anger? Anger is a blocked goal. I demand and I deserve, and when I don't get it, I go volcanic. So when that burgundy minivan, you know who you are, cuts me off on Broadway, I deserve an express lane. Get the blank out of my way. It's a fit of anger. Hmm, that's not good. Rivalries, silly competitive things, dissensions where we just don't agree on minute details. We jump up and down on thin ice rather than thick ice matters. Divisions, ooh, envy, this is fun. Envy, whereas jealousy is, I want your stuff. Envy says, I want you to not have your stuff. It's even meaner. Like, I don't just want your stuff. I want you to not have your stuff because you don't deserve that stuff because I'm your better. Woo. Then these sort of outworkings of being controlled, led, guided by something other than the Spirit of God. Drunkenness, orgies, that word drunkenness, methi. It's, uh, it's allowing some other substance to guide me, control me, fulfill me, other than the Spirit of God, working itself out in orgies. That's sort of a, just a, an overarching generic term. I won't go into all of that. And things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So is Paul saying that if you do these things, if you have ever done these things, that's it, you're out? No. No, the language and the verb tenses are very specific. Someone who is characterized by doing these things normatively and is not aware of it and crushed and brought to their knees by the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not a believer at all. They have experienced what is known as a false conversion. They said a thing out of fear and pride, but they are not indwelled by the Spirit of God. Of course, there are moments and there are seasons of relapse and backsliding. But anytime a Christian, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, engages in that sort of pattern of sin, he recognizes and realizes that it is not insignificant. It is an offense, not of a rule, but of a person who was divine, who was God himself, nailed to a cross. And they're heart-rended over it. Why would this good and decent, perfect, beautiful being die for my foul wretchedness? My God, would you forgive me? <laughs> and as my friend Matt McGill always sings, the answer is always yes. He already has. Well, that's what the Christian liberty does not do. Next, what Christian liberty does not fail to produce. In verse 22 and 23, it's a very familiar passage. What Christian liberty does not fail to produce. Now, I use that expression very cautiously. This is what Christian liberty does not fail to produce. If you are in Christ, a fully devoted follower of Christ, indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, this is what will not fail to be produced. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, I would love to spend an entire two and a half months just walking through this list, but we're not going to do that because this is a sermon series through the entire book of Galatians. It is not a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. And another reason I don't want to do that is because I want you to notice very carefully, this is the fruit of the Spirit. It is singular, the karpos. In other words, this list these aspects, these facets of the fruit, if you will, are not mutually exclusive. You cannot say, well, I'm absolutely killing it in the love category, but I have no self-control. <laughs> nope. Sorry. You cannot say, well, I'm actually a very good and, and gentle person, but I have no joy. <laughs> no. They go together. They are one fruit. It is of the Spirit. Let me just talk about some of these very briefly. The fruit of the Spirit is love, agape. And it ain't slape, agape. This is love, godlike love. And there are so many passages that remind us of what love is. Love is moving your life towards someone else with no expectation of recompense. Love is wanting another's good over yours. 
if you're a parent, you know this. I would jump in front of a slow train for my boys, if need be, without thinking about it. Love is a well-reasoned concern for somebody else. It is seeing the worth in them, even if they do not, regardless of what they can give you in return. God is love, says 1 John. Do you know this is distinctly unique to Christianity? No other system of belief can say that their God is love because our God exists in Trinity. And for all eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist in three persons and there is one God. And there has been a perfect love, a well-reasoned concern, a moving of life toward another. For all eternity past, God has always loved. The Father loves the Spirit and the Son. The Son loves the Spirit and the Father. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. They've always loved been characterized by love and then the advent of humanity and they love us God is ascending God but some of you are aware I got to spend the last couple weeks in a predominantly uh, Muslim set of countries and it struck me as I was reading through all of this material for this passage there is a profound difference between the God we profess the God of our Bible versus Allah Allah is sovereign he is glorious he is strong he is big and he is mighty but you will never, ever read in the Quran that Allah is love. Because in the Quran, he has existed for all eternity, but there was never anyone or anything for him to love until the advent of humanity, and he does not love humanity. He's righteous, but he is not characterized by love. This is a distinctly Christian characteristic. God is love. Joy. Joy. Joy, the book of Acts will tell you, is the product of fulfillment. It's the opposite of joy. Just being sour and dour and having that look on your face like you just ate someone else's socks. You know Christians like this. Praise God, I'm going to heaven one day. You're like, well, I want it, I want it on a different bus. That looks awful. That's terrible. In the book of Acts, Peter and John get beaten by their comrades in the Sanhedrin. Their, their fellow countrymen, Jews, beat them with rods. What do Peter and John do? No, they walk outside and they rejoice because they are fulfilled. They are found worthy to suffer for the name of their Savior. Joy is the product of fulfillment. So I have to ask, are you fulfilled? Peace. Oh, there's love, there's joy, there's peace. What is peace? Paul will talk about this extensively in Philippians chapter 4. Think on these things. Let your mind idle. Let the whir of your mind be on these good and noble things and the peace of God will be with you. Not only that, should you continue on and meditate day and night on these good and perfect things, then not just the peace of God will be with you, but the God of peace himself will be with you. And what does that mean? It means you are characterized by a radical even keelness. That's the word in Philippians. You will have a radical even keelness. So whether you get hit by a tsunami or order a 72-ounce smoothie, you react the same. So, hey, this is just, this is life. You're not rocked by the flu. You're not rocked by winning the lottery. I have learned the secret, Paul says, in rich or poor, hungry and fed, cold and hot, sick and well, I have a radical even keelness. I am not moved by my circumstances. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing if that's how you were known? To not be rattled by, by the environment around you. You are a person with a spiritual gravitas. That is what the Spirit is working to produce. Unless we unplug from that source and try to go on autopilot ourselves, then we are opposed to God. Well, the list continues. Love, joy, peace, but I'm not going to read all of these and exegete them all. Patience, macrothumia, great endurance. The things that, that come our way, we're not rattled by. And I was doing a little temperature check this week, and I realized I was standing in line, and the person in front of me was going a little bit slower than I needed them to. And when I say needed to, I mean that's subjective. I just, they were in my way. Get out, get out of the way. And so I did not have micro, macrothumia. I had microthumia. Like, ugh, mm, sorry, sorry, sorry. Realize that. Patience. These are very synonymous. Kindness, goodness. Can I just make it as simple as I can? Be nice. Not because you have to, not because someone might be watching, 
but because the God of the universe was nice to you, not counting your sin against you. We have peace with God. He was nice. Could we, could we be characterized as the same? Faithfulness. Now, i got to camp on this for a second. Faithfulness. The word is pistis. It does not mean obligation. Again, harken back to verse 18. We are not under the law. Faithfulness means we obey because we want to, not because we have to. We are faithful not because we have to earn God's favor, but because we already have it. That's what faithfulness looks like. Because we know our God and what he has done, we want to do what he wants. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Uh, and I really wish he would have stopped with eight. Because there's this whole self-control thing. Uh, not so much. Self-control, he caps off the list of these nine facets, these aspects. Against such things, there is no law. Because a person in whom the Spirit is producing this fruit shines even brighter than one who does her or his best to fulfill the law. A person in whom the Spirit of God is welling up. Look, if I could somehow see you apart from your sin nature, should God pull back the veil of this material world and I could see you the way God sees you, I would be tempted to fall down in worship, says C.S. Lewis, and he's right. So we get the privilege in this age of looking at and treating others and thinking of them as if that age has already come. There is no law because a person in whom the Spirit of God is welling up fruit is so far and above and beyond the best the law could ever produce. Verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, verb tense, past tense, it has happened, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, have crucified, not have shot or drowned or electrocuted or given lethal injection or hanged, have crucified. Why is that significant? This verse is so crucial and key. And you know this, I'm not going to go into all the violence and all the gore, but crucifixion is a long, slow, painful, deliberate death. Our old sin nature, the sarks, the flesh, has been crucified with Christ, and it still takes quite a while for it to, to go away. In fact, it takes Christ returning for it to finally and fully go away. But we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul does this really cool thing. He uses a word called epithumia, over-desire, hyper-desire, where we want things more than we should, even the good things. I want things, and those good things become the best things, but I realize that's not of God, and so I allow that to be nailed to the cross of Christ. See also Colossians 2.15. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We have to be jacked into the source. We have to be connected, volitionally, intentionally, consistently, and frequently aware of the Spirit's presence in our life. This week I got to hear some stories about Lawrence of Arabia, a British man who, during the time of World War I, uh, united all the Arab Bedouin tribes to war against the Ottoman Turks. Now, incidentally, in these Arab nations, they don't call him Lawrence of Arabia. They call him Lawrence of England, which is fine. But Lawrence of Arabia gets all these shepherds and goat herds and arms them with leftover British munitions, and he, he strategizes and coaches them and leads them and leads them in victory over the Ottoman Turks in Arabia, a humongous underdog victory. And at the conclusion of World War I, Lawrence of Arabia convinces the British government to bring some of the chieftains from Arabia to Paris, France, and put them up in a very nice luxury hotel to be a part of the celebration of the conclusion of World War I. All the dignitaries, all the military leaders are all there to see all the, the treaties and the papers and all those things signed as the close of World War I. And these Bedouin chiefs, who've never seen anything like this, this hotel in Paris, France, go into their hotel rooms and walk into their bathrooms, and they, they see this faucet, and they turn it on, and there's cold, clear, crisp, cool water just coming through in a steady stream. Well, I've been in this wilderness in the last couple of weeks, and there's not water like this. And these Bedouin chieftains were astonished at these cold streams of water that would come forth. So all of the proceedings are finished with all the conclusion of World War I. 
And as they're all leaving, Lawrence of Arabia discovers that every single one of these chieftains had gone into their bathrooms and unscrewed the faucet and put it in their bags. They were going to take it home and supply cool, cold, crisp water to their village. And Lawrence had to explain, no, 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 it's not about the faucet. It has to be connected to the source, to the ma'im chaim in Hebrew, to the living water, or it's merely a piece of brass. Paul essentially says the same thing. We have to be connected to the source. If we live by the Spirit, and we do, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, be volitionally, intentionally, deliberately, continuously aware of the Spirit. That's a hard thing to do. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do you see what happens when we're not walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit? The very first thing that happens is it turns outward. People will say, well, the sin, my little vice, it's a victimless crime. No, sir, no such thing. The moment you unengage from volitional awareness and yielded and submittedness to the Spirit, you can't help it. It is above and beyond your capacity to withstand. You will turn outward and against. But let us not do that, Paul says. This is the default. A person who is engaged in sin, unchecked, unconnected to the Spirit, even if it's morality, even if it's decency. Listen, in the latter part of the 20th century, sexual immorality in the church was rampant, but maybe not how you think. Hundreds of thousands of students walked an aisle and got their true love weights ring. Oh, I'm going to be pure. I'm going to maintain purity. By God, I'm going to be pure. And it was all done under the power of the will and the grit of the teeth. And it was godless. Now, not every one of them, if you have a true love weights ring and you're still married, stop that. Not all of them, but anytime we try to be moral and good and decent, it is opposed to the Spirit of God. And that will always turn us out. Maybe I'm good and moral and decent, but it's all done in my own strength and grit and power. Then you know what I'm going to have? I may be not sexually impure, but I'll have jealousy and envy and strife and dissension. And some of you go to church with some of those people. What are we to do with this list? What Christian liberty does not mean, what it doesn't do, and what it does not fail to produce? We want to be inward to one another, blessing and building and edifying, not outwardly destructive. So let me just give you two very quick implications of what this passage means. Number one, try hard to not try hard. I know that's weird, and it may even sound a little bit weird or zen or freaky, but listen, stick with me. Try hard to not try hard. We don't like yield signs. I don't like seeing that little red triangle with the with white inner triangle. I don't like that thing. My answer to a yield sign is the long skinny pedal on the right. If I go faster, the chances are they can't get me. So I'm just going to hit it. Now, that's a terrible strategy, and I know that. Because I'm a dude, and I think all my ideas are good until I find myself at Cody's toe lot right there, right? No, we don't like yield signs, but we are to yield to the Spirit. Try hard to not try hard. When we find ourselves using sort of a, a bootstrap mentality, it means we're not looking to the spirit, but to our own strength, forgetting that we actually have none. Nothing I can do can please God in my own strength. Paul will say that over and over and over again. So you get to stop. You get to stop and think and do what's wise and say, whoa, 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 whoa. I get to try hard to not try hard. Instead, I yield to the spirit. God, what are you doing here? What are you doing? I want to stay in fellowship. I want to be rid of all unrighteousness. I want to be filled, as Ephesians 3 says, with the fullness of the glory of your son, that I will be sensitive to your spirit. What are you doing here, God? Mm, that's a life lived in Christian liberty. Number two, flesh is fast, fruit takes time. Notice that the fleshly 15 are all actions, actions, actions. You do, you do, you do. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, strife, enmity, all those things are just things that you do quickly, but not the fruit of the Spirit. It takes time. Slowly cultivated. And sometimes, in fact, probably most of the time, 
you don't even know that it's happening. Jesus himself said, the kingdom of God is like a little leaven that slowly works itself through the yeast, through the dough. You can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't measure it, but it's happening whether you feel it or not, and you probably don't. Sistren, brethren, do not revert to that which you can detect and discern with your eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. Oh, but I don't, I gotta feel it. Paul says, no, you don't. The fruit is slow, it's gradual, it takes place over time. You trust God that he will develop that in your life. And then you look back a year later, 10 years later, and you say, oh my goodness, praise God, look what you have done in my life. I am increasingly characterized by self-control. And I didn't do anything. I was just aware of your movement in my life. Oh my goodness, I have such a joy, regardless of the stage of my cancer, regardless of the state of my marriage, I have peace. And I didn't work for this. I didn't develop it. God, you did this. Do you see? Flesh is fast, but fruit takes time. Well, I hope we say something like this every single Sunday, but I'm going to say it again. Jesus is the answer. Why am I saying that? Because if you're anything like me at all, you hear the fleshly 15 contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit, and the first thing you want to do is go, hmm, okay, well, how am I doing? You want to look in the mirror and go, well, let me see how am I doing. Well, fair to Midland, but at least I'm better than that guy. Now you stop that. This passage is not about you self-assessing and evaluating how you're doing because that's a chain that will bind you and break you. This passage is to show you Jesus the fruit of the Spirit is Jesus. Look at love and joy and peace and look at Jesus. Look at patience. And has there ever been anyone who endured more than Christ? Is there anyone who is ever gooder than Jesus? Who is more faithful? Who is gentle? Who is compassionate? Is there anyone who ever had self-control? Who, when those whom he had created nailed him to wood, spat on his face, and he could have raised one eyebrow, and the hosts of angels would have made the cosmos a parking lot. But he was self-controlled. It's not about you trying to go, okay, spirit, I'm ready. Let's do this. You've got to try hard to not try hard. Simply yield and walk in the Spirit, being aware. See the world through His eyes. This is why we study our Bibles. We read God's Word to think His thoughts after Him. That's why it's so important. So if you're here this morning, and you're not indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, and you're just slugging it out to be good and moral and decent because people are watching, God bless you. Would you, would you stop? Just lay that aside. My God, my God, will not forsake you. I challenge you, I double-dog dare you to ask God if it's true that he sent his son to save you. Again, as Matt sings, the answer is always yes. Do you have the boldness and the courage to ask the question? If you're here this morning and you've been a believer for a very long time, but you have forgotten and you have placed yourself yet again under law, working at your morality, your decency, and your general goodness, but unconnected to the source of life, God bless you. Would you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face? Now, to bring all of this to culmination and conclusion, we get to do something this morning uh, that is the perfect passage. Because this morning, if you'll indulge just for a few more moments, we're going to uh, conduct an ordination service here very briefly because this is for you, the church body, as much as it is for the candidate. One of the great blessings of serving a living God is that he calls men to ministry to serve him. And so this morning we get to make a big deal about that. Now, I'm going to tell you that I have written this down and I'm going to read it almost verbatim because if I go off script at all, I'm going to bawl like a newborn. So... Look, I'm jet-lagged, I'm jelly-brained, just go with me on this, okay? I'm going to have to be pretty static about this or I will absolutely lose my stuff. So, it's a great, great honor and a privilege to be a part of serving God and his church and we get to be a part of recognizing God's calling of men in ministry. And over the course of several months and for some even a year, several men in our church have made their calling to ministry known and last month and a half ago or so, 
a council made up of leaders of Bethel, uh, met and examined these men for the purpose of recommending them to be ordained to gospel ministry. Ministry, diakonos, through the dust. They kick up dust as they herald the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ. These men have said, we believe God is calling us to that. Ordination is the action of our church congregation to recognize and confirm these men's eligibility for this ministry and acknowledge the Holy Spirit's calling of that person. In ordination, we demonstrate our confidence in these men and acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is calling on them by the laying on of hands. As a church, our elders have approved the ordination of four men in our congregation, Jerry Putman, Clint Wright, Kevin East, and Matt McGill. Now, this morning, we will be recognizing Matt McGill for ordination here at the downtown campus. Two weeks ago on April 30th, we had an ordination service at our south campus for the other men. So now I would ask, I would like for Matt to come forward. Matt, if you'll join me up here, please. I met Matt and his lovely wife, Megan, in October of 2010. Matt and Megan were singing at, a, uh, at an event for a local ministry that we were trying to start. And it was at Bergfield Park in the amphitheater. And they were singing their hearts out. They were bringing it. Matt was soaked to the bone in sweat. It was glorious. It was Matt and Megan and Colin was there doing the Colin thing, you know, the rock on the bass. And I looked around and uh, the, the, it was a packed house. It was absolutely full of me. I was the only guy in the audience. And I was sitting there doing the white man overbite, you know. And they were bringing it. I mean, they were bringing it like it was Jerry World. Like, I mean, was, they were just, I mean, unfazed by the fact that I was the only guy who was paying any attention. And something hit me. Something struck me. And it was if the, the Spirit of God said, that's going to be your partner. And I said, he's sweaty. <laughs> Matt and I continued to meet over the next several months and I said look I think God's doing something I think you're supposed to come and lead worship and he said well that's a new thing for me and I said I know I know but I think this is what God is doing and so Matt and his family came to Bethel on April 8th 2012 Easter weekend talk about deep end of the pool in this very room well five years ago a long time ago so it seems here's what I can tell you Matt McGill loves the Lord Jesus I know of no higher compliment. He loves the Lord Jesus, and he is passionate about grace. I call Matt our freedom fighter. Ah, crud, here I go. He's our freedom fighter. He is always striving when he sees people who are shackled to bust them loose. He's a freedom fighter. He's been shepherding souls along with his wife, Megan, since they walked in our door. Together they lead various marriage groups, and Matt leads at least three men's groups that I know of. There may be some other guerrilla groups that are under the radar, but I don't know. Matt is gifted by God artistically, and he shares that gifting with other people generously in all of the ways he conveys beauty through the gospel. Some of you were here on Friday night, and we did a tribute concert for Willie Nelson. And I was hearing some of you send me texts. I was in Amman, Jordan. And I was getting texts and video clips of the red-headed stranger in Jordan. That's surreal, people. <laughs> and Matt gave the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ, redeemed man to himself and to one another. And it was an extension. It was a reaching out and an embrace of our community, just like Jesus does. Matt has always been transfixed by the human longing for beauty and how the gospel is the ultimate manifestation of beauty. And so we want to provide beauty in this place. And Matt, he's our captain. He's our captain for beauty and wonder and art. He's actively leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Matt is one of my closest friends, and I am profoundly grateful for his role in our church and in my life personally. So many times, Matt has spoken as though the Spirit to me. And I know that many of you have received that same blessing as well. And so my charge to you, Matt, this will be brief, lest again I lose it. My charge to you is to continue to love, lead, guide, and guard God's people. The church is the bride of Christ. 
There is no higher honor than to serve as an under-shepherd and servant. Preach the word. It is the very word of God. So Matt, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. You can simply answer by I will or I do. As far as you understand your own heart, do you affirm that your true motives for seeking ordination is a desire for the glory of God, love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and a passion to serve and follow him in ministry? Will you diligently commit to practicing the personal spiritual disciplines that guard your heart, nurture your spiritual life, enrich your ministry, and model faithful Christian discipleship? Will you intentionally live in a manner to the best of yours and the Spirit's ability, worthy of your calling as a minister of Christ, seeking always to be a loving husband and father, and of good reputation, conducting yourself wisely, graciously, and with integrity toward others? Will you faithfully pursue your ministry, seeking by the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim from the scriptures the whole counsel of God, lead the people of God to worship in sincerity, to shepherd those whom God places under your care and equip them to serve faithfully, encourage Christian fellowship and unity, and further the work of missions and evangelism? Matt, may our God who has called you to your ministry, may he give you the love and grace to also perform that ministry. May you be faithful in the work God has called you to do, and may God be glorified by your lives as you glorify your Father in heaven. It's at this point that I want to ask and invite all of our ordained men, our elders and deacons and pastors who are present to also come forward. If you are an elder, a deacon, or a pastor, if you would please come forward. I want to ask these guys who are coming forward to surround Matt and to place their hands on Matt. Laying on of hands does not suggest the special giving of any unique authority, but rather it is a symbolic way in which those in leadership are recognizing Matt's calling and giftedness. It is the church, by God's spirit, saying, Matt, you are pastoring. And we want to see that continue and increase. And so may God bless you as you live out your calling. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And again, I have written this down lest I lose it, but please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we rejoice in what you have done in the life of Matt McGill. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus, called him. The Spirit taught him. And Father, you have greatly used Matt. Today, Matt stands on the threshold of a lifetime of continued ministry. Our passionate concern, Lord, is that you will use him way beyond his highest expectation. We know that you, God, are able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. We've heard of that power this morning, Father. And today we thank you for Matt's family, his friends, his teachers, his mentors, godly men and women who have built into Matt's life, preparing him uniquely for the occasion to which you are calling him. We pray, God, that you will keep Matt clean from the midst of a corrupt generation. May May he shine his light in the midst of a darkened world. We pray that God will use him with increasing effectiveness for his greater glory. Your word tells us that when you call us to anything, you will always provide the resources needed. And so may Matt draw deeply from the rich well of grace. Father, would you keep Matt on his knees, learning the power of prayer and always asking the question, is it really worth doing anything if I can do it without prayer? The answer is no. Give him the passion of our Savior, who at the end of his life commanded his disciples, go therefore and make disciples. Father, as a good shepherd, would you go before Matt? Lead him in a plain path to do your will and to do it courageously. Keep him from sin that so easily entangles. And in his success, prevent him from believing his own press reports. And humble him under the mighty hand of God. Would you multiply his already great giftedness to extend and enrich the body of Christ? Reproduce in Matt the body of Christ, the heart of Christ, the life of Christ. So now, Matt, I exhort you, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so we ask it expectantly and believingly in the wonderful name of our Savior and Lord, the name above all names, Jesus our Christ. And all God's people agreed, and they affirmed Matt and said, Amen. Thank you, Matt.
It's a recognition of responsibility and authority to love and lead and guide and guard. And Matt has already been doing that. This is not something that we hope Matt will learn how to do. Matt is already pastoring people, and it delights my soul to watch him love God's people. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. If you would, please, let's stand for a word of benediction. And we're concluded. You'll come by, I hope, and shake Matt's hand, hug his neck, uh, and tell him you love him, because I know that this brother loves you. Now, may the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work to continue to build and to bless the body. In the name of the Lord Jesus and in the power of the Spirit, God bless. You are dismissed. Amen. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.